Looking to sharpen your competitive edge when it comes to design? Join hundreds of subscribers using 11FS Pulse to solve their users' problems and get to market faster. Discover over 4,000 user journeys from global brands like Revolut, Curve, and Soldo, and learn how to design winning customer propositions with our expert analysis. Get started today by visiting bit.ly forward slash get a pulse demo. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you TrueLayer disrupting payments with a payments as a service product launch, Stripe investing in fast Series B, and that GameStop story everybody is talking about. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 498 of Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Mel Stringer. How are you doing, Mel? I'm really well, thank you. Really excited to be on the show. Lots to talk about today. And of course, really excited about the dessert at the end of the show. Yeah, well, no, me too. Like uh, like all good meals, we will work our way there. We will cover the GameStop thing. Um, but we are, of course, joined by some fantastic guests to get through the fintech news first. So hold on to your hats, listeners. I think this is going to be a great show. Uh, making a fintech insider debut, we have Enzo Casola, who is head of Red te- RegTech sorry, at Suede Labs. Welcome to the show, Enzo. How are you doing? Hi. Hi, Simon. I'm very good. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks. Do you want to just give everybody the uh, 15 seconds on who Suede Labs is? Yeah, absolutely. So Suede Labs is a red tech company. Gosh, we have uh, seven years already on the market. So basically, we automate standardized reg reporting. But just go beyond just building a small platform is the whole uh, package. Data standardization, regulatory reporting, bringing everybody together on one single source of truth that you want. And my goodness, reg reporting is important, and it's the one thing that got unloved. So I love that you guys are giving it some fintech goodness. Uh, equally, making a fintech insider debut is Osama Solomon, who is Chief Product Officer over at Truler. Welcome to the show. Big week for you guys this week. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. And yes, it has been a big week for us. Um, with that, why don't we just jump into your big week? So this first story is about Truler launching a payments as a service product. Um, so of course, Truler, you're known in Europe for your open banking API provision. Um, the new product provides firms with the ability to onboard customers and bypass card schemes using faster payment rails for account-to-account payouts and deposits. The white-label product is suitable for fintech firms, banks and trading platforms, wealth tech firms, e-commerce providers, gaming operators, and promises 3x faster onboarding and higher payment conversion rates. So uh, I guess you know a little bit about this, Osama. Naturally, we want to come to you first on this. What can you tell us about this? What's the main problem you're solving and what are the benefits for customers? Yeah, thank you for that. So the the, the main point is, frankly, uh, plastics don't have a, sp- a place in uh, online. They just don't make sense. And online payments based around cards just are worse from an identity and verification flow perspective because there's such a lot of friction associated with those, and that leads to customer drop-off. And also, they're slow, especially if you're on the withdrawal side. So yes, there's instant payments on cards if you're paying in, but if you want to return that money back, usually it takes three days or, uh, or something like that, and accordingly results in a lot of frustration for the customers. Where's my money? How long is it going to come and all that? So from that perspective, that's why we kind of 
try to think about that problem from the ground up and pay direct kind of the answer that we came up to address all of those issues. It's, as you mentioned, built on top of open banking um, uh, infrastructure, but also instant uh, bank payment rails, like faster payments in the UK. And it allows businesses to register customers in seconds and enable those customers to both deposit and withdraw money instantaneously and seamlessly. So if I understood it right, then, that what you're doing is you're using the open banking rails to check that the customer is who they say they are, frictionlessly figure out this is who is is needing to get paid or this is who's making the payment, and then using the UK's sort of payments infrastructure, faster payments, to actually execute the payment. You're not doing it through PISP. Uh, so it's, it's actually a combination of those oh, two okay. things. Oh, okay. Interesting. I'm yeah. learning. Yeah, yeah. So um, we are using uh, PISP for the payment in leg of uh, of the journey. So, and people who who have tried that open banking payments is actually uh, pretty good from that perspective. You uh, pick your bank, so it's a one click. There is a biometric check through your uh, through the bank app, the face ID or a touch ID, and then you're done. So from that perspective, it's very high converting. And, and this is so I'm at a checkout on my favorite store and instead of clicking um, and entering my card details, I click this other button and boom, up pops my app and I just biometrically authenticate. That is correct. So it's it's literally, you say, I want to go and do an instant bank transfer, for instance. Uh, my bank is uh, whatever it is and that's it. You, get, you, you are biometrically checked and it's done. And... From that on that leg, we also kind of pick up your data so that we can verify that it is you. Mm-hmm. But I, I imagine with our international and US listeners might not be as familiar with strong customer authentication. But if you're a merchant in Europe, um, you run a little Shopify store or whatever, then strong customer authentication can be a, a, an experience breaker for for a lot of people on the card side, which is saying, hey, not only you can't make a payment as easy as you used to, now you've got to go back and do this other layer of authentication on top, whereas actually the whole journey is just doing that authentication when you're doing it through 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 this route. That is exactly correct. It is completely embedded in, in that process. So... Um... So yes, strong uh, customer authentication is uh, since you're doing the biometric check, since you're actually doing it on your phone, it, it complies with strong uh, customer authentication through that that journey. Well, well done, guys. I'm super excited for what comes next. I want to bring in some of our other guests on this one. But uh, Mel, I just want to come to you first. What are your thoughts when you saw this? Um, I thought it was really exciting. I mean, I can see a lot of benefits, actually, and it's uh, particularly timely um, if you've been watching uh, watching Reddit and uh, Wall Street bets, people are having an absolute nightmare getting funds in and out of different platforms. It can take three days to get your funds out. So this, for that kind of thing, I can imagine um, completely superseding the, the use of credit cards to or even debit cards to, to fund accounts for sure. Um, I guess I'm curious about things like chargebacks and if this um, solution completely mitigates that risk. So from an e-commerce point of view, it could be a really attractive, really attractive uh, option. Yeah. So the, we, we actually think it, it, it does in a very big way. There's a couple of things going for it. The first thing is since it's going through bank level uh, security and authentication, the, you actually almost 
reduce the fraud by a very large percentage. And in cases where it, it is uh, on an app and you're doing the biometric checks, kind of almost eliminate it because we know you own that bank account and the banks know that as well. So from that perspective, you remove a lot of that fraud overhang for, uh, from kind of both the customer side and the merchant side. The other thing is, as we mentioned, since it, it, it goes in, pays in, and then allows you to withdraw to the same bank account, since you know where the money is going back to and it's authenticated as yours, you also remove a lot of the uh, concerns from that perspective. And b- since both legs are also instant, that that also removes the concern about where is my money? Can I, can I get things done now? And um, linking back to kind of our dessert of a story at the end of the day, we have seen over the last two days, a number of uh, our customers really uh, get through and uh, be able to help their end users onboard in a very quick way on their trading platforms and allow them to kind of uh, invest right away, but also take out their their money in in a very quick way based on what we're doing. It's interesting how the combination of um, AISP, like the account data side, proving somebody is who they say they are combined right at the time of a payment is sort of the killer app. You put those two things together and it's like, I know who it is and they're making this payment. And and it, in a way, when open banking came along two, three years ago, everybody was looking for the use case. And that argument seems to have gone away, um, which is really quite powerful. Um, Enzo, just, uh, I've only got a couple of minutes left on this story. I wanted to get your views before we, uh, before we, uh, before we moved on. Uh, no, it's definitely very, very exciting. I was actually thinking uh, when I was reading the article about, uh, so I recently moved houses uh, last week and I'm still waiting for my security deposit back, right? So how simple, how easy it will be if you just uh, authenticate who you are, get, receive your payment and, and do it instantaneously, right? No, so um, definitely it creates a lot of, uh, or reduces a lot of frictions from um, for, for the consumer, for businesses, uh, you can see well, an, an increase in on liquidity for the businesses, for the regulators as well. Uh, it creates, I guess, a, a more standardized way of looking at the same trades. Right? At the end of the day, you know who you are. The problem is proving who you are. And you have this um, this platform, this feature that will allow you to, uh, to instantaneously combine payments and identification. That's definitely a plus. So the way I see it is you can receive instant messages while you cannot just receive instant payments. Yeah, it makes complete sense. Um, so, Sam, what's coming next for PayDirect? What, what are the, what are you uh, looking forward to? Uh, so, we're, we're quite excited about uh, our, our initial launch. And uh, the, the one last thing I would say about it is what, what our customers tell us is most exciting for them is how much higher converting it is than anything else. Um, we see... 20, sometimes up to 30% higher conversion rates than cards, just because it's, it's, a, it's, it's a payment method that is made for online. But we're really uh, looking forward to um, growing in the UK, and we have, uh, we have very uh, big plans for Europe where we're going to launch uh, PayDirect in over the next few months. If you speak to anybody in the e-commerce space and say, I've got a solution for you that's going to increase your checkout conversion by uh, 20 to 30 percent, they're going to they're going to bite your hand off for that. That's uh, that's super compelling. And is that and you've been running this thing with some merchants at scale for a little while. Sorry, I'm just curious on the, the level of data there as well. 
Yeah, so we have been running this with a small set of customers, but in terms of the higher rate conversion, we, we, we have seen that uh, both on pay direct, but also on our normal uh, pay- payments and open banking payments capabilities. So we have actually very large data set of proof points around that. That's hugely exciting for anybody, I think, in the payments business. Um, and I know there's a lot of things emerging in this space. There's there's um, small new companies coming looking to do it, and the European open banking space is certainly, I think, one to watch. So uh, let, let's see if that continues to, to happen in the near future. Well, um, thank you so much. I'm going to move us to the next story. And this one comes from the FT, and it's about MasterCard on the theme of payments are increasing their fees for UK purchases from the EU. Buhis. Um, MasterCard are going to increase their fees fivefold. So when a British shopper uses a debit or credit card to buy from an EU-based company. So when the UK was a part of Europe, um, the EU introduced a cap in 2015 on interchange fees after the concerns of those hidden fees were, of course, introduced. Now, if you're a US listener, this would be quite similar to the Dodd-Frank um, sort of Durban amendment that happened in the US. But the cap uh, in Europe was was really quite significant by comparison. Dodd-Frank, I think, capped out at around 1.5% under the Durban amendment, whereas actually um, in Europe, we were currently looking at about 0.3%. 3% on online credit card payments um, and debit cards. Uh, it was about 0.2% or 20 basis points. Um, and that's moving up from 0.3% on credit cards to 1.5% and from 0.2% on debit cards to 1.15%. Um, and so as our resident reg tech expert, what do you make of this one? <laughs> this is, uh, well, from my perspective, is a bit uh, opportunistic on one side, but at the same the same day, you could expect that, you know. So now there is no more cap, so magically I need to uh, standardize all my costs across all the different non-EU uh, countries, right? That's definitely, I don't, I, I don't see a real cost justification to do that, really. I don't see that there is any anything that changed from last year to this year that can drive master cost increase. Um, from the regulator perspective, I think, um, well, MasterCard is not taking any risks, it's not taking any additional capital because of this. Uh, so we just wonder how, uh, where they're going to be acting. Because at the end of the day, part of, uh, of the reason of, of, of having the whole block is to be kind of standardize, um, mm. you know, the, the transactions. Now, uh, the, U- the, the UK is apart from that. Can the UK apply tighter regulation or not? Right. Um, now, am I going to be changing my MasterCard because of the 1% or 2% extra? I don't see that happening. Uh, from my perspective, it's more about um, how this is going to be impacting uh, smaller businesses, how it's going to be impacting um, and of, uh, tourism uh, restoration, which coincidentally are the sectors that are more affected by the current pandemic. Right. So if you are like a big tech that have multiple entities in Europe and the UK, you can actually afford the luxury of either absorb the cost or relocate some of your assets. But if you're a small businesses, that, 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 that creates uh, a bit, it's more problematic, I would say. And am I right in saying, Mel, that the big loser here is the smaller European business who's got UK customers? So the UK customer is trying to buy from a European business and this fee has now uh, increased. So it's also uh, on top of our additional sort of taxation issues when buying from abroad, we've also got 
this as well. Um, but I, I would imagine um, you know, interchange, if you are a, an issuing bank, is nowhere near as bad a thing as it is if you are a merchant. So, um, so talk about uh, sort of some of the impacts of, of that for maybe some of the challenge banks and neobanks as well. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's a few things to unpack here, like from a from a merchant point of view, um, I guess they could either choose to pass the cost on um, or they could absorb that cost. Um, so there is something to be done there, I suppose. But I mean, from my point of view, I see it more as an opportunity. So this sort of cap on interchange to me is impeding innovation in some ways um, and allowing there to be slightly more profit, slightly more margin um, doesn't really impact the average UK shopper, actually. And in my opinion, a lot of this is being conflated with um, the purported VAT fees, um, you know, on some products coming in from the EU. There was one fairly sensational story from the BBC where a lady bought a jacket and she was uh, charged an extra 80 quid because of the delivery prices. And, you know, of course, it's just all opportunistic, but I think that we shouldn't, um, yeah, we shouldn't be too, too worried about it. I can see that this could be uh, a really good opportunity for some challenger banks um, and, you know, companies that are thinking about expanding their user base into Europe. So rather than it being, um, you know, something that keeps UK as an island, it could actually be a way for UK-based fintechs to become profitable more quickly. So I guess it depends how you frame it. Yeah, so if you talk to a lot of the neobanks, as they call them in the US, uh, a big revenue line for those guys is interchange. Um, and it's one of the big ways they make money. And and actually, the European uh, challenger banks often get hit for not driving a profit and driving revenue. So it, it, you know, this would also benefit the big banks too, of course, and, and uh, they, they would also potentially win some back. But Osama, what about the merchant side of this? I guess um, this might even be a, a bad move by the schemes to push people further away from, from their payments rails. So I, I would just say that the timing was very fortunate for us uh, with us coming up with a new uh, product that is focused on uh, just making it easier for the customer, for the end user, but also helping the merchant. And this is, I, I, I believe, uh, definitely wasn't planned on our side, but we will take it. Uh, and I, I think it, 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 it just clarifies how um, the credit card networks view kind of the monopoly that they've built and they see it as a way to extract more fees for, frankly, technology that they have built very long time ago, kind of finalized all, capitalized all of the depreciation on it and and, 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 and kind of extract a lot of value from it already. Um, but we think that um, it is an opportunity for, for us. We do believe that's going to impact some merchants, especially those that get a lot of their business from the UK in, in a bigger way. But I think for the average merchant, it's probably not going to be that big of an impact because probably most of their uh, businesses coming out from Europe. And, and talk to me, um, just to give this an, an international perspective, do you think there's an opportunity uh, for, for what Truelay does and that type of payment on a, on a more global basis? I know you've largely got a European base and European coverage, but um, do you think that we will see others um, start to do this type of payment because the merchant demand is there? Yeah, so we 
we definitely have very global ambitions and we're going um we're kind of our plan is to be uh, on, on the forefront of open banking all over the world where we already have uh, an office on Australia because that's uh, they've implemented open banking there or they are implementing open banking there and we and we want to push on that in a big way and we 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 see a, a lot of opportunities across the world in APAC a little bit in, in South America and even in places where they don't necessarily have the open banking structure. I think there's there's been moves to try to replicate it through a proprietary APIs that the banks have that 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 then they open up to a, a select number of providers, and we want to uh, participate in those as well. We think that, frankly, this is the future, and this is where it's it's, it's going. Um, I think at some point we're going to stop calling it open banking, and it's just going to be banking. We're not there yet; we're probably uh, a few years out. But we really think that. Specifically on the payment side, open banking is going to be the new standard for online payments. Open banking is going to be the new standard for online payments. There's a there's a tagline if ever I heard it. Um, Mel, last word for you on this one. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I would. Um, I think I would agree. I think um, open banking super exciting, big opportunity, and I think it would be nice if we could see um, obviously true true layer grow in that respect um, as well into other other markets as well. We're working on a really interesting project at the moment in um, South America, and. Um, if I could sort of plug and play exactly what TrueLayer does in that market, I think it would be um, the, the ideal solution from a consulting point of view. But we'll have to wait for a few years, I suspect. Wait, we shall. Um, but it seems like it's coming all over the world. And speaking of uh, quick breaks, well, uh, let's just take a quick pause here while we hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility, while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. This episode is also brought to you by MyTech, digital identity verification trusted the world over. Secure more high-value customers while reducing risk and costs with MyTech, a global leader and enterprise partner in identity verification technology. Create certainty in today's digital world with MyTech. Thank you so much to our sponsors. Uh, The next story comes from Finextra, and again on the payments theme, uh, Stripe leads a $102 million funding round for one-click shopping startup, Fast. And indeed, that was Fast. Uh, Launched in September uh, of 2020, uh, Fast's flagship product is designed to overcome the problem with uh, shopping cart abandonment by enabling customers to complete purchases with one click on any browser, any platform, any device. The process takes less than a second without requiring a password or manually inputting any information. Buyers are automatically signed up for Fast after their first purchase. Sellers can also place the Fast checkout on individual product pages, cutting out the shopping cart process altogether. Fast checkout is already available to millions of WooCommerce and BigCommerce sellers uh, with plans to expand to more e-commerce platforms in the online retailers in the coming months. Uh, this one is super, super interesting. Uh, Asama, I mean, we've been on this uh, subject for a little while. Um, my goodness, that was fast, wasn't it? This uh, Amazon one-click but for everywhere else seems to be really, really a theme. What are your thoughts on this? 
Um, multiple thoughts. As a former employee of Amazon, I, I understand the appeal. Uh, but uh, he had. No, it, it just makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it, it is focused on making the checkout process faster and less frictionless. And of course, we've all we've been talking about all of this uh, all throughout the show, actually, uh, so far. And um, you, uh, if you can remove a, a bunch of friction from the checkout process, you increase the a card conversion and decrease the abandonment, and as we said, hundreds of millions and tens of millions of dollars or pounds for for, for the merchants. Um, it has been fast, though. Uh, it, it is quite exciting. Uh, I have never tried it uh, fast myself. I, I just haven't come across of it. But the, the what they're doing makes a lot of sense to me, and I think it's a win for both merchants and customers. It just makes it easier to uh, complete the transaction. Um, oh, yeah. It's I'm here for it. There's a, there's a really good tweet by uh, Harry Stebbings of 20 Minute VC, if anybody knows it, of the uh, the entrepreneur and founder behind Fast, uh, who's, who's Dom, who's, who's exceptional at marketing, exceptional on Twitter, who slid into the DMs of, of Harry Stebbings with, with an absolute uh, goldmine of a pitch. Uh, and it's amazing what can be achieved in fintech in such a short space of time, um, uh, build, building a brand and building momentum in, in fintech. That's absolutely massive for a business that's only just launched. Launched, um, and I think it speaks to the real opportunity, and there's still the pain as as you know, e-commerce has just gone through an absolutely massive growth shunt. But Mel, I wonder, are there too many of these buttons at checkout now? You guess for checkout, and it's like there's an Amazon Pay button, there's a Shopify Pay button, there's PayPal, there's your Visa and your Mastercard. There's like I don't like this world. It's like it's almost like the days of when there were ten different rail companies to go anywhere, and it's just it's a complete mess, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it would be great, I think, if you could set up some way of choosing your preferred uh, your preferred button and then you could only see that and there wouldn't be so much noise, absolutely. But um, I, d- I do think actually that this uh, makes me question the sort of uh, psychology behind cart abandonment because I know that, you know, in lockdown, a lot of people have been doing uh, – pretend shopping online so putting lots of things into their shopping cart and uh, almost having the enjoyment of buying the thing without actually paying for it and taking delivery but you know the the small the, the, <laughs> it's the, window shopping in yeah, another way isn't it like absolutely yeah and so to remove all friction and just have one button and then it, you know it's paid for and then suddenly you're like oh my god it's on its way it's you know being delivered no, no, to you stop. <laughs> yeah stop 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 exactly um yeah i wonder if actually that maybe we need the friction and we haven't quite caught up with uh yeah, with that, we need, we need some barriers before the final shopping cart. Enzo, do we need some more friction? Um, actually, I see... So just this morning, I was reading another article, Stripe uh, leading another rounding fund for check, $35 million uh, as well. I think this is all part of the strategy to kind of standardize, streamline um, the processes, right? So as I was saying before... Um, I think consumers demand more and more from their service providers. This is all in line of having, you know, one platform that standardizes everything. Now, do do you want to have so many of these platforms that, as you say, you will have to be clicking uh, different buttons every time? I don't think we're going to get to that place, but I think eventually we're going to have some kind of consolidated uh, way of shopping. Indeed. And in Stripe's mission, I think, is always one of the best written mission statements to grow, to grow the GDP of the internet and uh, kind of things that, uh, that, that really help 
businesses scale. So Stripe Atlas is everything you need to set up a business. And then here are all of the tools you need to accept a payment and manage fraud and all of that kind of stuff. And then, uh, of course, it's a really good shout, Enzo, the investment in payroll startup Check, um, who really help uh, anybody who wants to do payroll through their platform and have really, there's some really good payroll platform software solutions, but none that are API first, or there weren't many at least. And so giving developers more control is something that Stripe really stands for. Um, but uh, Stripe has also made some acquisitions uh, and, and investments in, I believe, uh, was it Paystack and uh, a few other places and looking at international expansion. Uh, interesting business to, to watch. Enzo, you want us to jump back in there? Yeah, so uh, so I wanted to, to follow up on that. So I, th- I think um, over the last uh, year, so there's been definitely a transformation. Everybody's moving remotely, right? But investments has actually continued growing, and especially on infrastructure businesses, uh, businesses that helps to you know get rid of uh, legacy systems to streamline processes. Um, and I think this trend is definitely going to continue. We are not going to go back to go back to a pre-pandemic world like 2019. I think this is just. Uh, is in line with what, where the going is going now. And there's some really good data on e-commerce. I think Ben Evans, formerly of A16Z, published his his most uh, recent sort of uh, report. And in that, he was showing data from Amazon and Shopify and elsewhere that shows that uh, e-commerce spiked. And then when things opened up a little bit in the UK, it tailed off, but it tailed off much higher than it was historically. And of course, the lockdown's come and it spiked even further. And it really has shunted forward. And And Mel, I wonder, we've seen some very large investments for Checkout.com. They're the fourth largest valued fintech in the world. Uh, like payments and acquiring seems to be a good place to be at the moment. Yeah, I should say so. And I think it's, um, as you mentioned there, fueled by things like lockdown and um, more adoption to online purchases and uh, not wanting to necessarily go out doing everything online. Um, and of course, you can't have a card present transaction Um anymore if you're stuck in the house so everyone's sort of being forced to um, become comfortable with online shopping indeed they are um so uh, asomo uh, as you look forward to to this sort of stuff what do you think comes uh, next with a uh, with with all of this world do you think that uh, if you were to gaze into your crystal ball that um fast and stripe might be doing interesting things together and and in the near future w- what are you going to go into the speculation station which is now a thing yeah, I, I I don't know exactly where that that's gonna go. We we do know that Stripe has in the past invested in companies and then completely bought them out. But what I do know is Stripe is an amazing developer first company, and they're just hyper focused, as you said, on growing the GDP of the internet. And Fast is trying to do that. So that that pairing looks to me to to, to be really well suited and. Just having for fast having Stripe as an investor, I think is going to help them as they think about how to scale and just how to work in this space because Stripe has now about 11 years of experience doing this and they're, they're kind of the big daddy in, in that space. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. If, if there's too many checkout buttons, having another one uh, is, is interesting, but having one that's your play um, is, is also interesting. So uh, the, the, this space is just never going to get less interesting, is it? And I'm saying that word a lot, but like, I just, I'm such a nerd for this stuff. Already, um, moving us to the next story. Um, this one comes from Finextra and apparently the big US banks are going to pilot a day Data sharing risk assessment service. That is the kind of sentence that gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, so Bank of America, JP Morgan Chase, PNC Bank, TD, 
uh, Bank, Truist, US Bank, and Wells have piloted a data sharing risk assessment service that streamlines risk evaluations of data aggregators and financial apps. My God, we're going to need to unpack <laughs> that. Uh, this is uh, so today each financial institution wants to establish or renew a connection with a financial app or aggregator separately requests and receives the information relevant to its risk assessment that's obviously very inefficient this new centralized service can streamline it and essentially onboard uh, all of its customers onto uh, plaid or affinity um, TrueSight, which performed the pilot assessments was able to simplify information gathering and participating data aggregators and then provide over a secure platform. Enzo, this is interesting because of how the US markets played out. Um, the the plaids of the world were seen as almost hostile to, to the banks at quite some time. Some banks like PNC and JP even blocked plaid for a little while. Do, do, what do you think this signals that there's now this sort of risk assessment service? Is, is it the market accepting them as a reality? <laughs> that's that's definitely very interesting. Uh, so when I read this, I was definitely thinking of PSD2 um, and GDPR here in Europe. But I guess the main difference um, with the US is that it is not actually legislation or directives that are pushing this change. It's more banks that are organizing themselves and creating a standard platform, right? Uh, in a way, uh, this goes in lines to what other businesses are doing. Now the game is no longer about, you know, just focusing and capture the customer, keep them inside you. Now it's about being the backbone. It's, 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 it's the end game now. So this is definitely very exciting. It's not, you know, the uh, open banking as we know here in Europe, but uh, it's a very good first step. I look at this with European eyes or summer, and it sort of looks a little bit like CMA9 and, and kind of the large banks getting together and setting some rules um, about how they share information. Um, what are your thoughts looking at it? No, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think Enzo was uh, hit, hit, hit the nail on the head with his comparison to PSD2. So I think uh, PSD2 kind of regulated the space for um, in Europe and in the U.S., that does not exist. But in the meantime, Plaid, Finisty, and others have kind of found a way through primarily screen scraping uh, to get access to the end customer data that is housed within the banks. And now the banks have, some of them have built up their proprietary APIs and they said, okay, we're open for business in a limited way. And what happened is they had so many people knocking on the door mm -hmm. saying, I want to play that game. But the problem is since they actually don't have the capacity and the processes to vet all of those players and there were no schema or rules to do it. So now I think they're, they're, they're starting to come up with that. And of course, that is a very positive development. Um, it, it, it is a little bit um, kind of archaic still, I think, because... It seems still going to be a lot of heavy lift for all of the for all of the players involved, but it's a step in the in the right direction. Yeah, well, the project was developed through the Clearinghouses Connected Banking Initiative. Um, what do you think about um, sort of uh, the risks here uh, for the industry? Um, are, are they overplaying them? Are there real risks that the banks are trying to deal with? And, and what does it mean for the for the plads and the entrepreneurs who use things like plaid? Um, I think that, um, you know, 
Plaid will be considered to be um, an enabler and more of a friend to um, to these big banks. So that, you know, that's pretty good from, from where I'm sitting. Um, I also think that at the moment with things like um, onboarding customers, deciding how much credit somebody can have, deciding whether you can give them a loan or not, um, it's all about how much information you have on them. And, you know, you, you can have your own decision-making um, framework as to which factors you think are most important or how do you find that define the sort of credit scoring of the individual or company or whoever. But um, the ability to have more freely available information will allow uh, organizations that may be smaller or more conservative in certain areas to uh, to give people opportunities and to produce products that perhaps they necessarily wouldn't be able to due to their own risk aversion or maybe informational asymmetry with the big banks only or, um, you know, maybe just a, a few organizations in the U.S. having masses and masses of information. Maybe the smaller banks um, eventually will be able to play the same game. Indeed. And, and one of the big uh, frustrations, I think, for developers using Plaid for quite some time was was the amount of dropped requests. And that wasn't all really Plaid's fault, a lot of it was on the bank side. Um, and actually, if this starts to heal some of that, um, and, and same happened with Finicity and MX and some of the others, I don't mean to single out any one provider here. Um, but if this starts to really deal with that um, and creates better consumer experiences, then then you know it, it really signals that. And again, I think the, the overwhelming theme I'm taking from today's show is two things. One, um, it's all about payments and conversion. And two, open banking is well and truly here. Um, Enzo, uh, any final thoughts before we move on from this one? Um, well, no, I'm very, very excited to see, you know, the U.S. also embracing this, um, this standardization, right? So maybe, well, the U.S. is definitely very different than Europe. Maybe we won't see it what, what we see here in Europe, but the, the trend is clear, right? Uh, you either adapt or you disappear. The, uh, just, I don't think there's um, uh, any big bank can now just be 100% confident that just because they are big, they won't fail. Now, smaller challenge banks and payment platforms can actually post a trade on different on different aspects to the bank. In a weird way, and perversely, the the US's lack of regulation has also created some interesting conditions where uh, interchange is higher. So you have neo banks that are more profitable, where um, the market tends to solve problems with crumbling infrastructure, but actually it it generates demand inside of a massive market like Plaid. And somehow it, it's almost in spite of it, it seems to do to get scale and create these 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 other opportunities. So uh, exciting to watch and exciting to see the differences play out. But yes, if there is a rule set underneath, um, then folks with experience in that could, could go a long, long way indeed. All right, I'm going to move us to stories we didn't have time to cover because, um, my goodness, there is a story we, we want to spend some time covering. Um, and we will get to that, believe me. So the first story we didn't have time to cover. Uh, Mel, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. So uh, the first one that we have is um, JP Morgan Chase hiring 400 uh, people for an upcoming UK mobile bank launch. Um, so rumors about this, uh, about a JP Morgan's intention to introduce a Chase branded online lender in the UK have been circulating for years. 
actually. Uh, the US giant has confirmed it's licensed and ready to go. Uh, I think that the idea is that they're going to go in the next couple of months. Um, and the first product offered is a current account, so very sexy, which is already being piloted. Um, it's hoping that Chase, uh, which is obviously a huge name in the States, but not so well known in Britain, will combine the reassurance of an established and trusted bank with a seamless customer experience. And central to this is a purpose-built call center in Edinburgh that will offer personalized services around the clock. JP Morgan has already created 400 jobs at the center and the new venture headquarters in uh, Canary Wharf will follow with more um, positions there too. So, um, I mean, they've kind of been flirting with us for a while about this because <laughs> I think that, you know, the news has been circulating. We don't really know what it is that they're going to be offering. Um, I think that they're obviously hoping that it's going to land much better in the, the UK than it did with their first launch, um, Fin by Chase in the US, which uh, closed down, unfortunately, less than a year after it opened. Um, and they're focusing on a simple but exceptional banking experience. Um, and i Probably my voice probably sounds a little bit skeptical, but I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, companies like Starling. Uh, I think that they already do that really well. Um, so I'm not really sure that it will be exciting enough for this market. Uh, that being said, I do think that one of the most exciting things about this is that they have apparently um, appointed suppliers like AWS and 10x Future Technologies. So maybe their hook is actually that it will work. And uh, it will be, you know, an enjoyable experience to use. Maybe that's maybe that's the hook. I, I take your point, Mel. It's it's a crowded market in the UK for neobanks right now. But um, Marcus made it work, and they did it quite differently with the with the savings rates. Um, so let's see if uh, if a different approach works, um, and if there's more choice for consumers, that has to be a good thing. Alrighty. Um, so story uh, here about existing digital currencies unlikely to last, according to the Bank of England Governor uh, Mark Bailey. So cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin do not have the right structure to work as a long term payments method. Says the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey. Um, speaking on the World Economic Forum panel, he said, uh, Have we landed on what I would call the design governance arrangements for what we might call a sort of lasting digital currency? No, I don't think we're there yet. And honestly, uh, I don't think of cryptocurrencies originally founded are it. Uh, the problem for Bailey is the volatility associated with cryptocurrencies as seen in recent weeks with Bitcoin's wildly fluctuating price. However, he does think it's right to explore central bank digital currencies saying they're up for grabs. Oh, how do I, how, where do I start on this? Um, People always look at Bitcoin and say, that's not good for payments, but it's kind of like looking at gold and saying, that's not good for payments. Like It's not the point. Um, it's it's meant to do something different. Um, payments has three central measurements. Um, is it a unit of account, uh, a store of value, and is it a way to move, uh, move money and transact? As a way to move money and transact, uh, Bitcoin is pretty poor. As a unit of account, its volatility makes it not great. But as a store of value, it, it absolutely qualifies as an asset. Um, and also what um, what uh, Andrew Bailey is leaving out here, of course, is the whole concept of stable coins. These are um, tokens that are a bit like Bitcoin. However, they are pegged to an existing real world currency like USDC and USDT. And that is a private market initiative, which is not central bank issued digital currency, but is effectively like e-money would be in Europe. So um, I do think that between uh, the the 
polar opinion of, oh, it's Bitcoin's not good for payments and we want central bank digital currencies. Actually, in the middle is stable coins. And my money, uh, I don't have any money, actually. My my guess is that we will see um, that start to play out as, as the middle ground, a bit like we have with open banking. So let's see. Alrighty, enough prattling on about the storage we didn't have time to cover. It's time. Let's do this, people. GameStop can't stop going up, or at least it couldn't until quite recently. So arguably the biggest story of the week, going viral on social media, this might take some time to break down. Of course, GameStop, if you're not familiar with it, is a video game retailer. It's been in decline for quite some time, as the high street um, in the US has as well. Uh, On January the 4th, the um, stock was just worth $17.25. On January the 11th, Ryan Cohen, uh, founder of Chewy, which sold to PetSmart for uh, $3.5 billion, joined GameStop's board after his investment firm built up a 10% stake in the company. At this point, retail investors, especially those in the popular subreddit, Wall Street Bets, kind of went a little bit crazy. They caused the stock of GameStop to rocket 50% in a day, up to $65, giving it a market value of $4.5 billion. Some hedge funds, of course, had been shorting the stock, when GameStop looked like a dead business, believing the stock price would go down. But instead, the newly bought-in Reddit investors weren't budging, forcing the price up and the hedge funds to go out of pocket. And notably, the case of Melvin Capital Management had to get bailed out by other funds to stay solvent. So, Mel, there's, there's so much to unpack here. Where do you want to start with this one? Um, I guess I want to start with... Um the amazing community of, uh, you know, the Wall, Wall Street Bets guys. I think that they've created this uh, really open and uh, transparent forum to be able to discuss, um, you know, their, their thoughts um, about, about stocks in the market and, I guess, sharing sentiment. Um, I don't think that most of the advice or most of the comments that you read on there could be considered to be uh, investment advice. I think it's more like um, a war rally at this point. Um, there's like a million memes a second. Um, for nothing else, it's absolutely hilarious. Um, I recommend you take a look um, if you haven't already. Um, but I do think that this really represents a backlash against um, what a lot of people consider to be um, really unethical practices of big hedge funds and um, you know the, the big investors that are shorting um, stocks like GameStop. I mean, I suppose if you're in a global pandemic and you have a lot of physical stores, um, it's conceivable that your share price might go down. But to me, like the idea that you can short over 130% of a stock's float and you're actually, you know, borrowing more shares than exist in the market is completely immoral. Um, and if I'm allowed to say, I kind of think that, you know, they, they deserve everything that's happening to them. Yeah, indeed. Well, and I think that's the the hard thing on all of this, right, is you have post-financial crisis, a bunch of people who have seen Wall Street get bailed out. Um, and the Occupy Wall Street movement has now got a weapon um, and has organized. And the weapon was introduced by Robinhood, and that was the call option. So as much as people can do put options now in the large hedge funds betting and go short, the call option allowed the retail investor to fight back by going long. And so this, uh, by using Robinhood, 
Robinhood, with a very small amount of capital and at leverage, the retail investor could bet much bigger than their funds would normally allow them to do, which meant that they could potentially drive the price up. But the thing that everybody misses as well is, of course, Robinhood sells its order flow. So whenever the retail investors on Robinhood do something, that action is multiplied by a company called Citadel, who then front runs all of those retail investors and makes a tiny margin. So if you think about what Wall Street Bets has done, it's extremely clever. They've gamed the system by taking this weapon that they have, the call option, knowing that it's going to be amplified, moving the price, and knowing that also Melvin Capital and others will be the ones to lose out. And I think it's created a real rallying cry. Um, but, I, but I also have this horrible feeling that greater fall theory is going to kick in and somebody is going to be left holding the bags and it won't be Wall Street. Um, Osama, uh, what are your thoughts? Um, I, first off, I think this is the most fascinating story of the last few months. And it, it, it's just amazing how it all played out. Um, and I do agree with, with you, Simon, on that last part. Uh, so t- t- uh, today it's Thursday. The, the, the U.S. markets have been open for a few hours. And the stock went a little bit up and then started actually falling off a cliff. And I think it's because we got to a place where uh, – Frankly, we saw Robinhood and others starting to restrict their customers from buying GameStop. So it's like, okay, there's an intervention there to kind of break the, the crazy cycle because it is all ridiculous and quite crazy all across the board. Uh, but the impact of that is if you stop the buy side of everything, you just have sell, s- selling. So now we're seeing a precipitous um, fall. And a lot of people didn't buy at... 17 and 30, they bought at 200 and 300 and even 400. And there's losers always, isn't there? And I think some of that's a really good point. Although um, a lot of the lack of buying uh, is apparently driven by the fact that Robinhood uh, is no longer offering call options on um, on on on, uh, on the GameStop's uh, stock. You can't even buy stock. You can't even buy like you know just straight stock at all on. Um on Robinhood anymore. It's the same on um, Trading 212 as well. There's just a sell option. So, Which has angered Wall Street bets right. beyond belief. And they've taken to uh, downvoting the app on the App Store with, with lots of one-star reviews, which makes you wonder what would have happened if Robinhood was public at the time. Um, this is super interesting, Enzo. Um, from a regulated position, though, like, is this not market manipulation? Oh, it is. It is absolutely. I mean, um, I, I totally understand the perspective of, of you know Wall Street being the kind of the monopoly and being able to kind of gamify the system. One side and now retail investors have you want taking justice on their own hands and and, and start turning the game on them. Um, at the same time, um, I think part of the reasons why um, investment firms in general might have this bad reputation from the normal day to day people like you and I is that um, there is actually no much regulation. So when you think of a big bank, for example, you have prudential regulatory requirements uh, that will uh, ask them to, to, to have certain capital uh, to limit their exposures, uh, limit their investments. But when you talk about um, investment firms, there isn't really uh, anything standardized yet. Now, that is changing. So uh, now we have new IFR, IFD uh, regulations directive that is coming this year. Well, the UK is gonna still postpone for next year, but it's coming. The FCA was was actually a big player on 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 these new and these new rules, and um, 
what is going to happen now is that these investment firms are going to be treated as any other retailer bank. Wow. Right? So they will have to, you know, follow the same uh, reporting requirements, capital requirements, governance procedures that kind of will kind of limit it. Uh, we will limit what they do. It's going to be interesting, Enzo, though, because the historic regulations, I think, um, the, a lot of the issue was uh, that um, the rich were able to get rich because retail was kept out of uh, the markets in, in a big way. Um, but a lot of that was done post the Great Depression for retail's own benefit, because if you let retail run loose, then people can lose their houses and their livelihoods and bad things can happen. But then um, the, in a world in which the rich have got richer, the poor have got poorer, income inequality has gotten a lot, lot worse in the past two or three decades, which we've seen have political consequences in the form of populism and many other, um, you know, it, but on on both sides of the political spectrum, I wonder if we're seeing economic populism start to emerge, which is actually to say the institutions that are printed money and, and looked after Wall Street, you know, there's a hollowed out middle class all the way through working classes who and a generation of people whose opportunities are not what their parents were. Um, Mel, do you think that that might be a part of the fuel here? And do you think that policymakers and, and economists have, have really given space to, to that? Or, or do you think it's just these look like memes, these look like bad people, we should stop them? No, absolutely. I mean, well, I don't, think, I don't believe they are bad people. And um, I think you know, memes are a window into the truth in humanity. That's why we find them so funny. Um, but I, I think that, um, yeah, absolutely. There's some really heartbreaking stories from real people about their parents who lost jobs and they, you know, then couldn't go to university and it all sort of went wrong for them around the last financial crash. And so there's a lot of passion and spite actually in this. And I don't think that it's necessarily rational in the way that um, typically Wall Street has been uh, experienced rational market um, psychology and dynamics before. I think this is completely passionate. Um, I don't think a lot of people actually care if they lose um, they lose money on this. It's more of making a point and making a stand at this point um, for, for for people. And you know, it's not to say that people are putting in their entire uh, pensions or salaries, but I mean, a lot of people buying one stock can still, as we've seen, move the market. Do you think, uh, Osama, we'll see uh, some sort of regulation or rule-setting backlash to this? Because it's it, it, it was again Ben Evans' recent report. Regulation historically favours incumbents, not uh, innovators. So, is there is there a risk that the um, the response to this actually further uh, exacerbates income inequality rather than solves the problem of actually we probably don't want the barbarians taking down a stock or, or attacking Wall Street institutions through economics? Um, so I, 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 I think I'm going to be out of my depth on that one, frankly. What, what I would say, though, is uh, if you look at the initial structure of where we're at, and Mel touched upon this uh, at the beginning, we had a, a, a stock that was shorted 130% of its total uh, uh, shares that were floating. So that initial position is also not normal. It's not something that is, is what you would expect. So as a function of that, that is what caused the, frankly, what, what we're calling uh, the barbarians, in this case, the, the, the Wall Street, uh, Street bets folks, to have an opportunity to squeeze the hedge funds. Um, it seems that if you only 
regulate one aspect of the equation, that doesn't make sense to me. I think the the starting point is you you need to ba- to balance it all. You you already started with an, uh, a world where you, you the hedge funds could do shorting at a scale that is kind of completely unimaginable and, and not sustainable. It, it's not surprising. Um, and so what about you from a regulatory perspective, especially looking at the US where, you know, historic retail uh, investor has been sort of protected, but also potentially lost out um, as a result? How do you do you think policymakers and regulators are going to be able to find that balance? Um, yeah, so I mean, um, they we are moving to, uh, we, we have gone a long way since 2008 in the financial crisis. Now there are much more strict regulation. Um, what is surprising, though, is that banking institutions hasn't changed these procedures. So they keep using, you know, the old legacy systems, uh, the, 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 the old ways that actually failed 10 years ago. And now regulators are getting smarter. Um, the more and more they're asking for more granular detail of the data. Um, uh, in no long, I'm sure that we're going to be having real-time regulatory requirements, real-time reporting. Uh, and that's part of what Sweat is doing as a, as a company, one of the missions that we have. But without going too much in detail, uh, yes, I, I believe that uh, regulators are getting smarter. It's no longer just about just putting the numbers on a table and then just trust that the bank complete that table correctly. It's more about the bank going into the details of each trade. Okay, you shorted that stock. So how is that going to affect your overall uh, operations? Uh, last uh, word on this, Mel. Do you think what, what's next for Robinhood? Um, have they lost the trust of their users for good here? I think they may have done. Yeah, to be honest, I think unless they come out with some really good explanation around, you know, intermediaries and their own risk and um, affordability for them, which, quite frankly, at this point, I'm just not sure will fly. Um, yeah, I, I think it will be hard to um, to recover. Sentiment um, for them is is really 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 low. Um, I will say also um, with respect to like the Reddit community um, and, you know, just going back to the the data point, I'm, I'm wondering about informational asymmetry here as well, because there were some calls for, um, you know, Reddit and uh, people's conversations to be tracked and for, um, you know, Wall Street to be able to observe that. But I I just don't think that that is fair. That's not ethical. And um, I think it just means that, again, it's um, a cannibalization of um, open open market and open trade and uh, people's freedom. Well, it's interesting. Section 230 in the US, which is the law that makes um, a lot of online uh, media outlets not not um, the same as news, uh, it sort of protects them under free, a, a sort of form of free speech, which is really uh, interesting how you know, sort of the free flow of information allowed um, the, the, the masses to organize and share information about structural injustices. And then we see um, the kind of creation of the, the, the call option and, and weaponized in this way. Um, I, I wonder as well, you know, that bankers and central bankers like to use the word trust. Going back to Andrew Bailey's comments about, um, you know, Bitcoin doesn't function as a very good form of payments. But here's the thing. Um, the, the whole reason the US dollar and the petrodollar system works is because people trust it. Um, maybe that trust is really eroding faster than people realize. Um, and, and amongst a lot of very serious professionals, it's starting to erode. Um, so the market's heading into weird times. But my goodness, thank you guys for engaging in this debate. What an interesting topic. Um, next week's news show is going to have to go some to follow this one. But uh, I'm sure we'll give it a go. you got to stay here. Keep it locked to Fintech Insider. Um, all righty, that wraps up this show. Um, thank you so much to our guests. Where can people find out more about you and Trulair Osama? 
Oh, yeah, check us out on truelayer.com slash paydirect. And Enzo? Uh, Sway.org. You will have all the information there. And Mel? You can find more about me at 11fs.com and um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you so much. As for me, you can find me at SY Taylor on Twitter, probably retweeting Chamath or Elon or somebody else and, and uh, there for the dank memes. Um, and also you can uh, find me um, on LinkedIn, Simon Taylor. Thank you for listening. Please, please, please remember to subscribe. It helps us so, so much. Uh, and remember to email us, podcast at 11fs.com. What would you like to hear more of? What would you like to hear less of? Um, have a great week, everybody. Uh, goodbye for now.